0: Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. I'm really excited to talk about this section with you today, Bryce, section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants. One of the very first revelations in the church. We have a church that's Brand new April of 1830, and in Harmony, Pennsylvania, in July of 1830. The Lord, he's speaking to Emma specifically, isn't he?
0: He is. And this is a landmark section. This week, we're supposed to cover 23, 24, 25, and 26. Well, 23, 24, and 26 are great, and they have some wonderful application, but they don't rise to the level that 25 is at. 25 is a landmark section. It was even called out by President Nelson in his talk in October of 2019. He elevates Section 25 to a very prominent position. It's worthy of our Soul focus. The only section given to a woman in all of the Doctrine and Covenants, 138 sections, and this is the one. It was given to Emma. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there are at least three layers to section 25, and you can even find more, but we're going to focus on three layers. Layer number one is the Lord speaking to Emma Smith. And that one's significant because Emma was an elect lady, and Emma did have some tasks that the Lord wanted her to do, like the hymn book that Emma started, and the Lord is speaking to Emma. And that's kind of the layer that most people will study this week. And that's a good layer. And that's a great layer. But then I would push you beyond that. The second layer is that the Lord is speaking to and about all women. And every single person on earth needs to hear that. Because in our culture, in our history, women have often not been highlighted like they should have been. They have not received the attention that they should have received. I love that in the latest round of church history and the saints we are pulling more and more the stories of the women of church history because they have made tremendous contributions. But I want everyone to hear what God has to say about his daughters, and it commands our respect and our attention. Layer number three is that it is God speaking to the wife of the prophet Symbolically representing the membership of the church as the bride of Christ. And this is one that is a little bit hard to find, but let me introduce this thought by having you turn to Hosea in the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, you really just need the chapter headings. You can do it without knowing a whole lot about um, the Old Testament. Hosea the prophet is asked to marry a harlot. In chapter 1, the chapter heading says, Hosea and his family are a sign unto Israel, meaning Hosea and his wife and their children are a pattern of the gospel. So in verse 2, chapter Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, and the Lord said unto Hosea, go and take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. For the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. In other words, the prophet and his wife are symbols of Jesus and the church. So, because the church had apostatized and left Jesus and worshiped other gods, it was like an unfaithful wife cheating on her husband. And so, he makes that a pattern. So, a faithful prophet and a faithful wife would represent a faithful bride to Christ. So, layer number three, now think through the New Testament, you know, the ten virgins, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. Um, How many times is the second coming referred to as a wedding? And Paul uses that imagery a lot, that Jesus is married to the church, and so this message to Emma is a message to all of us how to be faithful to our husband, which is Jesus.
1: I might interject here that Donna Nielsen wrote a book called Beloved Bridegroom, where she takes readers through the traditions of Jewish weddings to show the gospel in these cultural representations of what they did at weddings. And it's a well-written book. It's, it's short But it really draws attention to these ideas. And so what Bryce is saying is that the woman, the bride, macro level, is God's church.
0: Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride. So Joseph, in this case, would symbolize Christ, and Emma would symbolize all of us. So you got to make sure you study it at the right level, because some people might be offended if the Lord tells Emma to be more supportive of her husband, But if you look at that at the third level, it's Jesus saying, we need to be more supportive of our faithful husband, who is Christ, we the church. And so you can find a lot of these apply more significantly at different levels. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the first level last. Mike has a tremendous rundown of the history of Emma Smith, which needs to be told because she has been one of the most faithful in all of church history. And we need to be careful that we don't taint her with the final years of her life because this was a faithful woman. So, we're going to do her history, we're going to talk about Emma. And we're going to keep pulling back into section 25 as to talk about some of her attributes. So, the Lord to Emma. We'll do that last. What I'd like to do first is that second layer. The Lord speaking to and about women. And he calls his daughters elect ladies. And I just want to take you through the scriptures and show you some of the messages that God delivers, that help us understand how he feels about the election of womanhood. So let me start in the Old Testament. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah. Now, it's significant to me that this chapter is repeated in the Book of Mormon. I'm very fascinated which Isaiah chapters get repeated in the Book of Mormon, and this is one of them. You can find this in 1 Nephi chapter 21, but I'd like to read it out of Isaiah chapter 49, and he's going to make an analogy here. And this is the point he's trying to make. When Jesus wants us to understand the atonement, when he truly wants to liken the atonement to something that we could comprehend, he compares it to motherhood. Atonement and motherhood are inseparably connected. Listen to this connection. Verse 14 is what we often say of God. I've heard myself, I've heard people I love. Uh, this is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. This is Peter on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. This, this is, the is Jews walking to is, Babylon. Yeah, this is so many of us. But Zion saith, the Lord hath forsaken me, my Lord hath forgotten me. Now, I know you've probably been tempted to say that, right? That where is God in all of this? Why has He left me abandoned? Why isn't He helping me? This is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. Oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? Or Peter on the boat, carest thou not that we perish? This is the moment we shake our fists at heaven and say, why are you letting this happen to me? Now, Jesus is about to say, I need you to understand that I can't abandon you. I can't. It's not possible for me to abandon you. Because of my atonement, I need you to know how I fe- how connected we are to each other. And so he compares it to the closest thing to the atonement. And he says in verse 15, Can a woman forget her sucking child? that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. There's the comparison. Jesus is like a young mother. And he's saying women can't walk away from their newborn babies. They've paid too high a price. Women, mothers can't walk away. Fathers could walk away much more easily. I love my children. I love them dearly, but I will never have the relationship with them that their mother has. And Jesus is saying, just like a woman can't walk away from her newborn child because she's paid too high a price, I can't walk away from you for the same reason. Women teach us of the atonement. Now, let's do another one same idea. Let's go to Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. Moses 6. This is a conversation between God and Enoch about the fall of Adam and that Adam was cleansed from the original sin by baptism. Verse 53, our father spake, why is it that men must repent and be baptized? I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the garden of Eden. So let me tell you how the plan of salvation works, Enoch. In verse 57, he says, no unclean thing can dwell therein, can dwell in his presence. So here's how you get to his presence. Verse 59, watch the comparison. That by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death? And inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water. Now, whose water allowed me to be born into the world? That's mom. That's mom's water. I was born into the world by water and blood, mom's blood, and the spirit. So, the entrance of my spirit into my body. I was born into this world by water, blood, and spirit that I have made and so become of dust a living soul. Even so, you must be born into the kingdom of heaven of water. Now, what water is my birth into the kingdom of heaven? It's the water of baptism. And of the Spirit, that's the receiving of the Holy Ghost after baptism, and be cleansed by blood. Now, do you see the connection? There are two people who shed their blood for me. There are two people whose water and blood give me life and birth and give me a chance at existence. It is my mother and my Savior. And those two go hand in hand motherhood womanhood and atonement those are the only two people he calls out and says this it is their water and their blood that that brings life now let me do another one kind of that same idea of childbirth Um, Turn with me to John chapter 16. One of the most profound doctrines of how the atonement works is taught by mothers and women. John chapter 16. Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. This is the Last Supper. He is going to leave them, and they are troubled by that. They are in pain because Jesus is leaving. But he's going to comfort them and teach a profound doctrine. This is how the atonement works. This is how the atonement makes our life better. And it's like a woman who gave birth. So verse 21, John 16, 21, a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. It is the most magical thing in the entire world. I have watched my beloved wife give birth 10 times. I have been standing by her the whole time. I have seen the travail in sorrow, which completely disappears the moment they hand that baby to her. The moment she holds that baby The pain of the delivery is magically gone. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying? This is how the gospel works. There is going to be some painful experiences in our journey to the celestial kingdom. But once we get there, once we obtain salvation, that joy will swallow up all the pain of the journey to get there. Now, C.S. Lewis taught this concept powerfully in The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is the story of the separation of heaven and hell. It's the divorce of heaven and hell. It's the story of a group of ghosts from hell who go on vacation to heaven, and they're allowed to stay as long as they give up the one thing they're holding on to that keeps them in hell. And in the middle of all that, the main character, which I would submit to you, is C.S. Lewis. He has this little conversation with his mentor. His mentor says, You cannot in your present state understand eternity. But you can get some likeness of it if you say both good and evil when they are full-grown become retrospective. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All their life on earth, too, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering. Now think about Joseph in Liberty Jail. Oh God, where art thou? They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, Think of maybe your sinful moments in the past. Of some sinful pleasure, didn't you say, let me but have this and I'll take the consequences? Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. That is why in the end of all things, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. No one teaches that truth better than a woman who gives birth they say all the pain of this mortal experience will be washed away in the joy of holding that little baby. And women everywhere stand as a testimony that that really is a reality. And Jesus is testifying that of all the pains and mortality, whatever we have to suffer for Christ's sake, whatever pains this mortal life brings, they will disappear in the joy of our salvation, in the joy of getting to the celestial kingdom and embracing Christ. All our tears will be wiped away. And that is what women teach.
1: In the Hebrew Bible, they take the name Eve. Her name shall be called Eve, for she is the mother of all living. And the name Eve is life bearer. And when the Greek translators that were Jewish realized we have to translate the Bible into Greek because nobody's reading Hebrew anymore. So they translate it into Greek and they keep the pun. They say her name shall be called Zoe, for she is the mother of all Zonton, the living ones. They keep the pun and they let go of Eve. I find that to be fascinating. Her name is rooted in life. And the Greek translators saw this. In 1 Kings 8, there's this dedicatory prayer where Solomon dedicates the temple. And in 6 and 7, there's this incredible detail on the temple. But my contention is that Christians in the medieval time period, they're building their cathedrals, modeling them on the temple. And there's some pretty good arguments out there that the temple and the cathedrals in Christianity are a representation of the woman that literally we get life at the temple and we cross veils and there's blood and there's water and there's a death, as it were, like something has to die. I'll never know what it's like to give birth, but when a woman gives birth, like part of her is broken. And
0: even in our modern temples, Mike, you'll notice if you go to the Salt Lake Temple, you'll see a sun, moon, and a star, but the order is not celestial, terrestrial, telestial. Stars are at the top, sun in the middle, and moon at the bottom. And if you go to Nauvoo, it's even more pronounced. The stars are at the very top of the column, and then there's a beautiful sunstone, and then at the very bottom is this moonstone. Well, that's a reference to Revelation chapter 12, where the woman who represents the bride of Christ, here she is in all of her glory, and it says she is clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, and wearing the stars as a crown above her. The temple is part of the bride. The temple is the woman. And he's constantly referring to the temple as that woman. And so, atonement And womanhood are forever connected. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are saying, I haven't given birth, so it doesn't apply to me. And that is not true. Let me show you something fascinating. Turn to Alma chapter 19. This is a beautiful moment for me. Lamoni is converted and goes into a trance. His change is so dramatic, he's overcome and he goes into a trance. Now, look at verse 13. During his trance, he says, I have seen my Redeemer. But notice what he says, he shall come forth and be born of a woman. So Lamoni, a wicked Lamanite king, is converted. He sees Jesus, who he calls his Redeemer, and he notes that he's going to be born of a woman. And he shall redeem all mankind who shall believe on his name. Now, that's what happens in his trance. But go back to verse 12. What's the first thing he does when he wakes up out of his trance? Now, in his trance, he's seen Jesus and he's made a connection between Jesus and womanhood. And the first thing he does when he wakes up in verse 12, he embraces his wife. He reaches out to his wife and says, blessed be the name of God and blessed art thou. Do you see what he was doing? Because of what he knew about atonement and womanhood, he was honoring his wife. And even those who haven't yet or won't ever give birth are honored by womanhood. It's like the tide rising all boats. He wakes up and feels this majesty towards his wife. And I think what's happening is the Lord is saying, we need to wake up and honor all women because of the position that womanhood provides to humanity. And even if you haven't yet give birth or you can't or you won't, whatever your situation, you are honored by womanhood. And we all need to wake up and reach out and honor womanhood. I really like that he reaches out to his wife. Now, that being said, let me point out a couple other fun little scriptures where God seems to pay tribute to women. And I don't mean to trash men. I don't think it's necessary to throw men under the bus in order to honor women. I am not offended by the truth that my wife has a connection to our children that I will never have. It doesn't diminish manhood. It just celebrates womanhood. Would you turn with me to Moses chapter 5? Again, I don't mean to diminish Adam, but listen to the difference between Adam and Eve. Verse 10, in that day, Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth saying, now notice the pronouns. Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. Now, I don't think Adam is necessarily being selfish, but Adam is seeing the world through his eyes. He is focused on him. Now steps forward, Eve, and tell me there isn't a sermon here. Verse 11, Moses 5.11, Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, were it not for, notice the difference, our transgression.
1: It's just one of those things you get with a careful reading. When you first read it, you miss it. But when you slow down... This is kind of an invitation to slow down and think about things, isn't it? Yeah. She says, were it not for
0: our transgression, we never would have had seed and never would have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life, which God hath given all the obedient. I think there's a sermon there. Now, I don't mean to be negative towards men and i don't think men are necessarily selfish but i think history would say that in general men have have had a greater tendency to focus on
1: themselves it's kind of in verse 11 where her focus is on seed and the redemption of the children and in verse 10 He's saying, blessed be the name of God. And then he's focusing on what he sees and what he does, which reminds me of the Genesis account where the Lord says, Adam, by the sweat of thy face, you're gonna go and get the bread. His focus is, how am I going to provide a way to survive? And her focus is, how am I going to be able to make the family a a place of, of safety where the hearth is a place of growth? And those focuses are okay. I think the roles of men and women, it's totally okay to say, That's part of what it means to be a man, is to go out into the world and through the sweat of your your face, bring home the bread. I love how you brought out that distinction in verse 11. She's got a little bit of a different focus. And again, isn't it tied to the Savior? Womanhood and atonement
0: seem to be forever linked. And by honoring womanhood, we are honoring atonement. Turn with me to Alma chapter 42. Now, notice the gender here. Alma chapter 42 is about justice and mercy. Verse 24, For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands. The law, justice, is masculine, and it's tough. And then it says, And also, mercy claimeth all which is her own mercy and forgiveness are feminine. And I think in general, I think history would reveal that masculinity has often had a tough, forceful, almost attitude. Law and justice is masculine, but mercy is often feminine. And I know I, for one, have been taught the greatest lessons of mercy and forgiveness by the women in my life. It seems to be very typical of that gender to be merciful and kind and forgiving, again, much like the Savior. I am grateful for the women of church history. I am grateful for the women of the scriptures, but I am grateful for the women in my life who have been a constant reminder to me of my Savior and His work and His mercy. Now, notice back in section 25, women are not given a secondary role in the church, Notice in verse 7, the Lord tells Emma that she is ordained to expound scriptures, to exhort the church. There's a whole lot here about edifying and learning and seeking and teaching and cleaving unto covenants. Women are given a significant role in expounding scriptures and exhorting the church So now let's shift into that third layer, the symbolism of the prophet and his bride. So Joseph here represents Jesus, and Emma now represents all of the church and our covenants to Christ. We are all collectively married to Jesus. We are all the wife of the prophet. So in that sense, we all need to be elect we need to be the glorious woman that's portrayed in Revelation chapter twelve, the woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon and wearing the stars.
1: You know, Bryce, historically in Christianity, the early Christian thinkers took the text and they said, Okay, how is this story like an allegory? And so what Bryce is introducing is this allegorical reading of of DNC twenty five. I think sometimes, especially Westerners approach Hosea. And they get so caught up in, well, did he marry or did he not marry a prostitute? And I don't even think that's the point of Hosea. I think we have to relax our eyes a little bit and sometimes read these things allegorically. We have this problem when we read Joshua in the conquest narratives, but the early Christian thinkers read Joshua and they said, we can't read this literally. This is not the Jesus of Nazareth that would dictate these orders. And so they read these things allegorically. And so this is one of... Of at least four possible interpretations of scriptural texts, this approach to the text as an allegory. And so I like what Bryce is doing here where he says, okay, how is section 25 to the church?
0: We are all that bride and Jesus is the groom. Now, President Nelson does the same thing. In October of 2019 General Conference, he gave a beautiful message to and about women and priesthood. And he says the following. It was in harmony that Emma Hell Smith served as her husband's first scribe while the prophet translated the Book of Mormon. Now think of that in terms of this allegory, in terms of the wife being the church and the prophet being Christ. It was also in harmony that Joseph received a revelation manifesting the Lord's will to Emma. The Lord instructed Emma to expound the scriptures, to exhort the church, to receive the Holy Ghost, to spend her time learning much. Emma was also counseled to lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better, and to hold fast to her covenants with God. The Lord concluded his instructions with these compelling words. This is my voice unto all. Everything that happened in this area has profound implications for your lives. See, he's drawing our attention to that third layer. The restoration of the priesthood, along with the Lord's counsel to Emma, can guide and bless each of you. How I yearn for you to understand that the restoration of the priesthood Is just as relevant to you as a woman as it is to any man. Because the Melchizedek priesthood has been restored, both covenant keeping women and men have access to all the spiritual blessings of the church, or we might say, to all the spiritual treasures the Lord has for his children. Every woman and every man who makes covenants with God and keeps those covenants and who participates worthily in priesthood ordinances has direct access to the power of God. Those who are endowed in the house of the Lord receive a gift of God's priesthood power by virtue of their covenant, along with a gift of knowledge to know how to draw upon that power. The heavens are just as open to women who are endowed with God's power flowing from their priesthood covenants as they are to any man who bear the priesthood. I pray that truth will register upon you, upon each of your hearts, because I believe it will change your life. Sisters, you have the right to draw liberally upon the Savior's power to help your family and others you love. Now this elevation of section 25. President Nelson says, Now, you might be saying to yourself, this sounds wonderful, but how do I do it? How do I draw the Savior's power into my life? You won't find this process spelled out in any manual. The Holy Ghost will be your personal tutor as you seek to understand what the Lord would have you know and do. This process is neither quick nor easy, but it is spiritually invigorating. What could possibly be more exciting than to labor with the Spirit who understands God's power, priesthood power? What I can tell you is that accessing that power in your life requires the same things that the Lord instructed Emma and each of you to do. Did you catch that? So I invite you to prayerfully study section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants and discover what the Holy Ghost will teach you. Your personal spiritual endeavor will bring you joy as you gain understanding and use the power with which you have been endowed. Section 25 is to the wife of the prophet, the bride of Christ. It is how we tap into his power. It's how we tap into the power of God. And President Nelson says the answers are in Section 25. So go find them. So let's do that. Now, there's no way. This is a lifetime pursuit. Section 25 is something you can spend your entire lifetime studying. There's no way Mike and I in a podcast can cover everything. But let me start with one very common tendency. Right after calling Emma an elect lady, The Lord says, murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen, for they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. Now, if I can personalize that and bring it to that level three, where all members of the church, he's saying, don't murmur because of the things that you don't have. The Lord is saying, don't get caught up in what I'm doing in someone else's life. You focus on what is happening in your life. It is wisdom in God that that happened in their life and that this happened in my life. But it is our tendency to compare ourselves to other people.
1: It's a natural human condition.
0: It is. And we constantly do it. We walk into a room and we notice everyone who has strengths where I have weaknesses. And we constantly compare. And I think I can trace it back to an early moment. I think this all, this is illustrated by a very early moment in this earth's history. If you'll go back to Moses chapter 3, the Lord is presenting the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. Now, tell me what he's pointing at when he says the word every here. He's going to use the word every. So verse 16, Moses 3.16 I, the Lord God, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. When he says the word every, can't you just picture him pointing to all of the trees in the garden? Look at everything that you have. Look at what I did when I made you. Look at all the good All the trees that you can partake of. But
1: what do we focus on?
0: And now go to the next chapter. Go to chapter four. Satan comes and guess what he does. So Moses chapter four, verse seven. Satan comes to the woman and says, wait a minute. Didn't God say you could eat from every tree? Subtle play on the word, right? What's he pointing to when he says the word every? He's pointing to the one tree that they can't partake of. I believe that God will always point out all that you are, all that you have, everything he did when he made you, all the positive qualities. But then Satan is going to come and point out all the flaws, All the things you don't have, that you can't do, that you aren't. Now, can I ask a piercing question? Whose voice do you listen to? Do you see all the good or do you see the one flaw? When you look at your physical body, when you look at your abilities and your talents, do you see all the good things that Heavenly Father made? Or do you murmur because of what has been withheld? Do you listen to the wrong voice? Are you listening to the wrong person who's always pointing out your flaws? Could you list your five greatest attributes as quickly as you could list your five biggest flaws?
1: That's telling which list you could write faster. The question I get often is, okay, you got me but how do we fix it? Okay, so what's the
0: antidote for this natural tendency? So I think one of the antidotes is implied in what the Lord says to Emma. Notice he says, murmur not because of the things that have been withheld. Why? It is wisdom in me. I made you this way. So tell me, what are you saying to God when you are basically saying, I should have been like that person? I should have had his abilities or her abilities. I should have her hairstyle or I should be as talented as he is. What are you saying to God when you murmur because of what you don't have? Aren't you basically saying he screwed up when he made you? But the Lord is saying, it is wisdom in me. Let me give you another scriptural example of what we do. Turn with me to the Old Testament and go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now, commander of the Israelite army was King Saul. And along comes this little pip squeak and defeats Goliath. Now turn to chapter 18, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And they come marching back from war. And verse 7, the women are singing, and notice what they say. And the women answered one another as they played, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, Saul did a wonderful job. There's nothing to be ashamed of, Saul. And David his ten thousands. Now, notice what Saul does in verse 8, because something good happened to David. Because he has a successful career or beautiful hair or a slim figure or a nice car. Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David 10,000. And to me, they have ascribed, but thousands. What does he do with the word, but there? He tears down his accomplishments because someone outdid him. He tears himself down because someone's more successful or someone's thinner or someone makes more money. Whatever the comparison, he butts himself. To David, they've ascribed 10,000s and to me, they have ascribed but 000.
1: Is that what you mean by but himself? He
0: butts himself. He tears himself down because something good happened to someone else. Now, can you hear the Lord say, murmur not because of the things that have been withheld? It is wisdom in me. So let me give you an antidote. Let's turn to the Book of Mormon and let me give you a couple of scriptures that may serve as a tremendous antidote. Turn with me to Alma chapter 29. What a blessing Alma 29 is. This is where Alma wishes he were something he wasn't. He wishes he were an angel and could shake the earth and convert people with raw power. He wishes he were more than he was. So verse three, he catches himself and says, I ought to be content with the things that the Lord hath allotted unto me. And then He gives the antidote in verse 9. May I suggest here is one of the antidotes that President Nelson is calling us on to adopt in order to tap into the Savior's power. Alma says, I know that which the Lord hath commanded me. And I think we could paraphrase that to say, I know what the Lord hath made me, or I know that which the Lord hath given me, and I glory in it. The antidote is to glory in what God has done in your life. Now, some people push back and say, but that's pride, Bryce. Right? I can't be proud. But notice what Alma says, I do not glory of myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. It is not an act of pride to be grateful and honor God for the blessings He has given you. It is not an act of pride to be grateful that your body is your body, that your abilities are your abilities, your height, your weight, the things that you can do to recognize God's hand and glory in what God has done is not an act of pride. I do not glory in myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath given me or commanded me or made me. So there's step number one. I'm going to see all the trees that I can eat. I know who I am and I glory in it. Now, the moment you can do that, look at verse 14. The moment you can glory in what God has made in your life, notice what Alma can now do. Once you are content with who you are, doesn't mean we can't improve ourselves. It doesn't mean we can't stretch ourselves. But the moment you stop trying to be someone else, the moment you stop murmuring about what you aren't and glory in what you are. You will then be able to do verse 14, Alma 29, verse 14. Alma says, I do not joy in my own success alone, but my joy is more full
1: because of the success of my brethren. It's like an invitation to live life. If I'm so focused on what I don't have, the tree, the fruit that I can't eat, quick illustration, I used to do a lot of running and I used to do a lot of triathlon and one of the things you learn about racing is you're never first place. There's only one person who's in first and I always beat myself up. And then in 2013, I had a debilitating stroke that took away years of my life and caused some problems. And I look at pictures of myself pre stroke versus now. And I think what in the heck was I so caught up in, in this for, I mean, it's good to compete. It's good to do well, but there were days I'd beat myself up. Like I wasn't enough. And I'm thinking I should have just enjoyed it. I should have just, enjoyed what I had. And I think there's, to me, some of this comes with wisdom. I think the younger you are, at least in my life, it's so easy to do this. But as I'm listening to you talk, Bryce, I still do it. I think it's a natural human tendency. Hence, it's in section 25.
0: I really do believe that President Nelson is onto something here and saying, if you want to tap into the Savior's power, stop doing this thing. Stop murmuring because of what you don't have. Well, we, it's so easy. It's to beat yourself so up. easy to do glory in what God has given you rejoice in the opportunities you have eat from the fruit of the trees you can eat from find joy in those trees. And I think that's the message. If you want power in your life, rejoice in who you are. It is exhausting to try and be someone else. But we have untold resources of energy to be ourselves. Stop comparing. Stop beating yourself up and tearing yourself down because there's something you can't do and someone else can. Or there's something that you don't have and someone else
1: does. And by the way, if we don't learn this, I think old age will teach us. It's almost like old age is just an instant wisdom drink. Because I think the Lord wants us to walk in paths of wisdom. Let me give you a great quotation
0: from Henry D. Moyle of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles um, back in the 50s, 1950s. Elder Moyle said, I have a conviction deep down in my heart that we are exactly what we should be. Each one of us. I have convinced myself that we all have those particular attributes, characteristics, and abilities which are essential for us to possess in order that we may fulfill the full purpose of our creation here upon the earth. Once again, that allotment which has come to us from God is a sacred allotment. It is something of which we should be proud Did you hear that from an apostle? It is something of which we should be proud. It's not a, I'm better than you proud. It's, I am grateful. I glorify in what God has given me. Elder Moyle says, it is something of which we should be proud, each one of us in our own right, and not wish we had somebody else's allotment. Our greatest success comes from being ourselves. I think that we can console ourselves best by believing that whatever is our allotment in life, whatever is our call in the priesthood, the Lord has been wise and just, and I might add merciful, in giving to us that which we need to accomplish the particular purpose of our call. Now, we'll put that quotation in the show notes if you want to read it again and share it with others. But I just bear my testimony, one of the greatest ways, from the Lord's lips, one of the best ways we tap into His power and we be a faithful wife to Christ is that we become content and happy and we glory in what I can do in this kingdom. I am grateful that God made me who he made me. I am not Mike Day. Try as I might, I can't be Mike Day, but I can be Bryce Dunford. And I can be as good a Bryce Dunford as I can be with the abilities that he gave Bryce Dunford. That seems to be preeminent in the list of ways to tap into the Savior's power. Now, I'll leave you the rest of section 25 in this sense. There's some great messages here. I love, for example, verse five, we need to comfort our husband. We need to have consoling words. So what's the most comforting thing I could say to my husband, Jesus? As his symbolic wife, what's the most comforting thing I could say to my husband? I am with you. I think Boyd K. Packer said it best. I love what Boyd K. Packer said early on in his life. He said the following, I want to be good. I'm not ashamed to say that. I want to be good. I found in my life that it was critically important that this be established between me and the Lord so that I knew that He knew which way I had committed my agency. I went before Him and in essence said, I am not neutral. You can do with me what you want. If you need my vote, it's there. I don't care what you do with me, and you don't have to take anything from me because I give it to you. Everything, all I own, all I am, and that makes the biggest difference. I think that's possibly the most comforting thing I could say to my husband, Jesus. Those are the most consoling words that I will follow and obey. Do you remember what he said to Peter? If you love me, feed my sheep. Lord, I'm in. I'm going to feed my sheep. Look at verse six. Go with him at the time of his going. Wherever Jesus is taking me, I go willingly. Whatever
1: calling he hands me, I go willingly. That phrase reminds me of Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And I I like the one by C.S. Lewis where C.L. Lewis says, I don't need so much of your time. I need you. And I think about that in a marriage. We just want our spouse. We want We want it all. And I see the Lord saying to the church, because he's going to say this later when we get to tithing and, and all the things that that means. But when it comes to tithing or offerings, what the Lord is saying to me is, I want all of you. I want you to be all in. And that's why the marriage relationship is so incredible because that's the one relationship where we hopefully have that experience. And even in that word where the Lord says that Adam knew Eve, that word is connected yada, to intimacy. And whenever the Lord speaks about Israel, he uses that specific word to say how he knows us. In other words, I know you intimately. Like we're back to this husband, wife analogy. So this is more than Joseph and Emma. This is us and Jesus. I really like that. I will go with him at the time of his going. Bryce, I just skipped over that. But when you unpack this level, it's right there. Yeah, where is Jesus taking me? When I was 19, he
0: took me to Mexico City. Lord, I'm in. I'll go. I will go wherever you are taking me at the time you are taking me. And then after two years, he sent me home. I will go with him. And I love the whole idea about the song. At level one, Emma was asked to to write a collection of hymns. But at level three, he's saying, my soul delighteth in the songs of your heart. So sing the songs of righteousness. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. Talk about something that's consoling unto God. Talk about comforting God. He's saying, I hear the songs of your heart and they are prayers unto me. So sing them. Sing them to me. I love that Alma calls them the songs of redeeming love.
1: By the way, Bryce, I just got to say this. A lot of scholars say the oldest text in the Bible is Exodus 15, the song of Miriam, the song of the sea. And in the Old Testament, there are some really interesting songs that celebrate the victory of Yahweh or Jehovah over the forces of evil or darkness. And there's one in Judges and there's one in Exodus and these songs are sung by women. And there's a lot of scholarship out there that says that these songs were sung in the temple, that the temple was a place where we came and we sang and we prayed and men and women had parts, but a lot of these songs were led by the women go read Exodus 15. There's a lot in there. And so when I'm reading 12 and 13, the song of the heart, and then the concept how it's connected to a prayer, and then the blessing on your head, think of the temple, and then lifting up your head. In other words, I'm seeing layers here with God speaking to the church. Many layers,
0: yeah. Now, remember, President Nelson says this is how we tap into God's power. We tap into God's power by not murmuring in the things that we don't have. We tap into God's power by going wherever God leads us by consoling him and comforting him. And then here we have, we tap into God's power by singing the songs of the righteous. I I keep thinking of, remember Alma, when he's trying to explain his conversion to his son in Alma 36, he says, the thought of facing God did fill me with inexpressible horror. But then he cries out, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy upon me. And the atonement redeems him. He's snatched. His own words are, he was snatched. And that he was filled with joy. And then there's this beautiful thought. Alma says, me thought, this is Alma 36, if you're interested. Me thought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne. And instead of being filled with inexpressible horror, like he said in verse 14, he was surrounded with concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. And my soul did long to be there. That's the prayer of the righteous. That's the songs of the righteous. I wish I could be in their presence singing and praising Heavenly Father. When you sing that song, when that's the song in your heart, you will have power, priesthood power and protective power. So beautiful layers here in section 25. Now we need to get to layer one. We need to talk about this wonderful, incredible woman, Emma. May you love her like we love her, and may you understand the example, the shining example she is in church history. Mike, talk to us about Emma.
1: I just want to pay tribute to her. What an incredible woman of faith. Emma was the seventh of nine children, and she's the child of Isaac and Elizabeth Hale. Now, Isaac Hale is a Revolutionary War veteran. He got married when he was 27 in 1890, and they had quite a few children. And he made his living shipping meat and other merchandise downriver to Philadelphia and Baltimore, and they lived in a place called Harmony, Pennsylvania. Today, if you go there, it's called Oakland. So if you're going on a church history tour on your own with your family, don't look for Harmony because you're not going to find it. But it's a little town called Oakland, and it's a beautiful town. Next to this river called the Susquehanna River. And that's where the priesthood was restored uh, to Joseph and Oliver. From descriptions of Emma, she grew to be a tall woman standing about five foot nine with dark hair, dark eyes, and an olive complexion. And she met Joseph Smith in 1825 when he was 19 years old. And he was working to locate a silver mine for Isaac Hale, Emma's father, and Josiah Stowell. Now, this is where Isaac's treatment of Joseph is kind of complicated. There was a woman that came to Isaac's brother, William. And in the historical record, she's called a peeper. She's a woman who, she sees things. And she comes to William Hale, who's Isaac Hale's brother, who's Emma's father. And she says, on this property, there's some buried treasure. There's some buried silver. And so through discussions between Isaac and Josiah and William, Isaac consents to have some digging happen. And Josiah Stoll says to Isaac and William, he says, you know what? I happen to know just the guys. I know some guys that we can call on to help us dig. We'll pay them and excellent hard workers. And this is where the connection comes between Joseph and Emma. Joseph is hired to come and go work to dig for this silver, as it were. And during the course of time, Joseph becomes acquainted with Emma And he tells his parents from the first time that he meets her that he's smitten with her. And during this time also of money digging, there's accounts, at least from Lucy Mac Smith's narrative, that Joseph encouraged Josiah to stop the dig. That, that, you know, we're not going to find any treasure. And I like to say that Joseph doesn't find treasure in Harmony, Pennsylvania, but then he does. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The, The treasure is Emma. And so it's during this time that he also realizes and recognizes in himself his lack of schooling. And so he actually goes and gets some education at this time, and he's also courting Emma. Now, Isaac's not for this. He definitely doesn't view Joseph as somebody worthy of his daughter. In fact, we read that he viewed the money-digging activities with conflicting emotions. For example, Isaac, on the one hand, Um, His farming experience taught him that the earth rarely had great riches, but when Josiah Stoll comes to him and says, hey, listen, we're going to get some money out of this ground, he didn't want to be left out. And so you can kind of see Isaac Hale's conflicting emotions where on one hand, he he's a rational being and he's used to farming but then on the other hand if his brother William who sometimes Isaac looked at William as kind of lazy and his thinking was if my brother who's not as hard of a worker as I am if he gets this silver and I don't I'm going to be left out and also it would kind of upset the balance of power between Isaac and Josiah these were two guys that farmed together and and so If Josiah gets the silver and I don't, he kind of felt this tension. So he consented to it. Well, over time, Joseph goes and tells these guys, hey, listen, we're not going to find it. And we actually linked this in the show notes, an actual agreement that was written up in November of 1825 between these men. If any money is found, you know, who gets the shares? Well, because the money isn't found, it seems to be from the historical record that Isaac kind of blames Joseph. Now I'm just going to throw this in. Joseph Smith was asked so many questions
0: repeatedly that one time he just wrote up the questions and the answers, and he printed it in the newspaper so he could just simply say, maybe this will suffice once and for all. And so a lot of the questions that were asked, he answered. And one of the questions—and he was quite matter-of-fact. For example, he'd say, can they, meaning Mormons, raise the dead? No nor can any other people that now lives or ever did. But God could raise the dead through man as an instrument. He just kind of had that little bite to him. But then what does Joseph Smith give as his divine mission? The signs which God is pleased to give him, according to his wisdom, thinks best, in order that he may judge the world. And then this question, was Joseph Smith a money digger? Yes, but it was never a very profitable job for him as he only got $14 a month for it. So he doesn't hide this reality, he doesn't hide this history. Yeah, I was hired as a money digger. It is true. But it didn't profit much and it didn't make me a lot of money. So I just I thought that's funny
1: that he would throw that in in a series of Q&A. Yeah. So that's kind of how they meet. Over course of time, he does pursue her and like I said Isaac is kind of refusing this and he says that he opposed him as a marriage partner because quote Joseph was a stranger. And then here's the irony. He also disapproved of Joseph's profession, which he left unstated, but may have meant Joseph's involvement in the search for a silver mine near his home. And the reason why I think that's ironic is because Isaac Hale was directly involved in the search for the silver, and therefore Joseph meets his daughter because he's searching for the silver, which Isaac wants to have found but he doesn't like Joseph's profession. So I'm just throwing that out there as a little bit of irony in this whole thing swirling around Joseph meeting Emma. And so over time, we read that Emma says that Joseph importuned her and aided by Mr. Stoll, who urged me to marry him as well. And then she says to her son, Joseph Third, she says, preferring to marry Joseph to any other man that I knew, I consented. And so because Isaac was against the marriage, Emma has to elope. And so Emma, she was educated. Like her mother taught her how to read when she was really young. And Emma's a little bit older than Joseph. And so she's been a teacher for some time. And she actually has cows. She has possessions. And she elopes with Joseph on January 18th, 1827. And she pieces out. She leaves. Her and Joseph go north to go live in Palmyra, or actually Manchester, which is right there, to go live in the frame home that was completed after Alvin's death in 1823. So if you go there to the church history sites, there's this little log cabin. And sometimes enemies of the church say that Emma went to go live in the log cabin, and that's just historically inaccurate. The log cabin had then been left, and they lived in the frame home, which was near the log cabin, which was much larger. It's a beautiful home. And that's where Emma goes to live. Now, she was comfortable When she was back home in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and she leaves Harmony to go live with Joseph and they're going to come back. They're going to come back in December and she's going to get her possessions and off and on she's going to live in Harmony, Pennsylvania until they go to the Peter Whitmer home and in the show notes so that you can see it. Emma's going to go through a period of many different residences. In fact, one historian says that she lived in perhaps 12 different residences in as many as 12 years. Now think about that as a woman. You're having children, you're a newlywed, and you're always having to move. And a lot of this is caused by the tension surrounding the restoration, the people that are opposing Joseph and the message of the Book of Mormon. And think about her father. She loved Isaac and she wanted to please him. And we don't have all the accounts, but I can assume that Isaac probably many times chided Emma and chastised her for choosing Joseph as a marriage partner and believing in Joseph. And she stood by him throughout this great time of difficulty. And I don't think that they ever had continuous peace in their marriage because of the opposition that they faced. So as we talked about before with the loss of the manuscript, Right after Martin leaves with the pages, Emma gives birth to Alvin and Alvin dies. And he dies the same hour that he was born. And Alvin is not going to be the first child that Emma and Joseph are going to lose. In fact, they have many children that die. And so of her 11 children, five will live to adulthood and only four of her children would outlive her. Now think about that as a woman. As I read these historical narratives, literally, it just wrenches my heart. They have Alvin that dies during the lost manuscript. They have twins in Ohio that are born April 30th, 1831, Thaddeus and Louisa. The twins died
0: almost immediately. Yeah. Emma loses her first three children, one and then two at the same time. And then Joseph Murdoch's wife dies, leaving him with twins, not knowing what to do. He ends up giving those to Joseph and Emma to raise. But just yeah. I can't even begin to tell you how that would just tug at my heartstrings to lose my first three children. Yeah. And to not only lose one
1: at a time, but then two at a time. Yeah. And the the twins, the Murdoch twins, Joseph Murdoch does die when Joseph is attacked by mobs who come in and, and rip him out of the house. And they have another son, Don Carlos, who's born June 13th, 1840. And he dies. He just lives 14 months. He lives until September 15th, 1841. When they're in the Nauvoo area, he dies. And then she had a stillborn son who was born on February 6th, 1842. And so of her 11 children, five would live to adulthood. And only four of her children would outlive her. Julia Murdoch Smith one of the Murdoch twins, lives, and she lives to all the way to 1880. So good news. And Joseph Smith third, born 1832, he lives to 1914. So he's going to play a big role in the life of Emma. Frederick Granger William Smith is born in 1836. He dies when he's 25 years old, so he doesn't outlive his mother. He dies in 1862. Alexander Hale Smith, born 1838, he dies in 1909. And then finally, David Hiram. David Hiram is in Emma's womb when Joseph's taken to Carthage. Never meets his father. Never meets him. Born November 17th, 1844, dies in 1904. And so those are her children. Bless her heart.
0: Emma deserves more mercy than anyone else I know.
1: I want to talk a little bit about Emma's assistance of Joseph in the translation. We've talked a lot about Martin, and we've talked a lot about what the Whitmers did in their contributions to the translation efforts, but sometimes we miss that Emma was a primary scribe in much of that manuscript that was lost. And during this time period, Emma wanted to see the plates, and she certainly could have. She talked about how she would lift them and move them when they were covered with cloth, and that she could feel the pages of the plates uh, she could feel the edges of them, and but she followed the command of the angel not to look. Later in her life, her son Joseph Smith III asked her a question one time when she was much older, and he said to her, Mom, is this Book of Mormon just kind of a made-up thing? Like, did you and Dad do this, or did Sidney Rigdon write the book? And a colleague of, of ours Casey Griffiths. He shared this experience. He does interfaith work with the community of Christ. And he says that he's actually held this paper that is in Joseph Smith III's handwriting. And it's an interview that he has with his mom, Emma. And he said to her, mom, did Sidney Rigdon write the book? Did he write the Book of Mormon? And Emma says, Sidney Rigdon never showed up to our house until a year after the Book of Mormon was written. I never saw him. I never met him meaning during the time of the Book of Mormon translation. And then at the end, he sits down with her and he says, Mom, just tell me, do you think Dad could have made all this up? I mean, this is a moment of a, of a young man talking to his mom, Joseph's long dad, and if he made it up, Emma could have just said, yeah, he made it up. And this is her response. This is exactly what he writes on the page in his notes, that Emma said, quote, My belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writings of the manuscript unless he was inspired for when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning are after meals or after interruptions, he could have once begin where he left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. And then later... Emma describes other things. She says she'll be scribing and Joseph will be looking at the plates and she will misspell a word and he'll stop her and he'll look at her and he'll say, Emma, you need to spell it this way. And Emma tells her son, she's like, there's no way he could do that because he's on the other side. He, he doesn't see what I'm writing. And so she's convinced that there's heaven in this. I really appreciate uh, Casey Griffiths sharing this. And in other accounts and other historical records, Emma talks about some of the experiences that she had as Joseph translated the plates. And we'll link these in the show notes. There's a beautiful video that's been made about Emma. And there's this one part in the video where Joseph's going through the translation process and he comes to the point where there's walls around Jerusalem and he stops and he says, Emma? Were there really walls around Jerusalem?
0: Because he didn't know. And Emma is blown away that he didn't know that. How could he not know? Emma knew it. Emma knew enough from the Bible. And she will tell this story in many forms. And the three witnesses will tell the story, which means they obviously got it from Emma because she's obviously bringing it up that she was blown away that her husband was so innocent and so unlearned that he did not know that Jerusalem had walls around it. He will say to her afterwards, oh, good, I thought I was being deceived. That's how it went for the two of them. Fascinating. And I love the other story that one day they got into a little bit of a tiff. They got into a little bit of a fight. Yes. And Joseph went upstairs and could not translate a single thing, not a syllable. He went down, he went out into the orchard and prayed and begged the Lord's forgiveness. He came back and begged Emma's forgiveness. And then he went upstairs and translated just fine. He could not translate unless he was in harmony with Emma, which I think is a very significant story that his relationship with Emma has a tremendous influence on whether or not he's
1: inspired and can translate. Bryce, I'm convinced that Emma played a huge role in the restoration, that Emma And Joseph are having discussions. We don't have this in the historical record, so I'm clearly speculating here. But as a married man, I can't say my life is my life. Like the conversations I have with my wife influence my decisions and influence the direction of my life. And I had
0: another thought, Mike. Do you remember how Oliver failed to translate because he didn't, he just asked that he hadn't done more? Well, obviously, Joseph had done that more. And I wonder if he and Emma, I wonder if the key was that Oliver didn't realize the year or so Joseph has the plates and just Emma, did they talk about? Did they practice? Did they yearn to translate? And what role does Emma play early on before Martin starts showing up, before Oliver shows up? Because Oliver fails to translate and is told you didn't do enough, which clearly Joseph did. And I can't help but think that Emma was a critical piece of that puzzle in unlocking uh, Joseph's ability to translate
1: the plates. Yeah. I I just, I can't see it any other way. And so she plays a role in this. Now, we don't talk about this a lot, but her baptism on the day she's baptized, Joseph's arrested. He's arrested. Now he's acquitted, but he's arrested and he's taken from Colville to South Bainbridge, 30 miles away for a trial. And so because of this arrest, she's not confirmed a member of the church. She's not confirmed for two months until after her baptism, and even though she's confirmed later and Joseph's acquitted, this causes her a lot of anxiety, and this is really a big push to get them out of New York. They're going to leave that area, and this is introducing what I call Emma's constant struggle. Now, if you want to go down the deep details of all this, it's just going to be in the show notes because it's kind of a lot, but just think about this. Imagine... Uh, You're you're moving 12 times, you're pregnant five times, you bury four of your children, and all this time, you're caring for four little children, little toddlers, for the majority of this time, during all these moves. Now, we're going to go kind of quick through these, but she goes from harmony... She goes to Palmyra, and then she goes back to Harmony, and then she gets kicked out of the house with Joseph because Isaac says, if I can't see the plates, you can't live here. So then she has to buy Jesse's house across the road, and the church is restored that you can go stand in that house that's been restored where the bulk of the translation takes place, and then they go and they move again, and then they eventually move to the Newell K. Whitney store upstairs in Ohio. And then they move to the John Johnson farm in Hiram. And then they move back to Kirtland and then they move to Missouri to far West. And then she gets there and then Joseph gets arrested and she doesn't know if he's going to live. And then she walks across the Mississippi river with children, with the manuscripts of the translation of the Bible in the snow across a frozen river with her children to go to Quincy, Illinois. And you think when they get to Illinois all is well, But then everybody gets sick and they get the ague, as they call it. They get malaria. And then she spends all that time period in the early months in Quincy and in Nauvoo, helping the saints and getting them and helping them recover. And so, so many times she's moving and oftentimes she's either living in a wagon or living at someone's home and I and I just I call this Emma's constant struggle because I think for a woman to not have a place of your own has got to be very unsettling. I think sometimes with men, it's easier. Joseph was doing the church work, but Emma was always in this displacement situation. And so much of it is just caused by the persecution that she experienced. And so I just wanted to pay tribute to her just in that regard. If If none of these other things happened, just that alone would be a tremendous sacrifice. When she gets to Nauvoo, she gets word that her dad dies. He dies January 1839. And in 1840, she writes a letter to her estranged family. See, her family, when she leaves, they don't see her again. But her nephew, Lorenzo Wasson, he comes out and he sees Emma And he says, this is Lorenzo's words, he says that his entire life he had been raised to believe incorrect things about Uncle Joseph, having an unprovoked prejudice against him. And Lorenzo, when he realizes that Joseph is what Emma says he is, Lorenzo says, you know what, let me write a letter to the family. And so he does, he writes a letter to the family and he encourages them to come out. And in later years, many of them do. Now they don't come to Nauvoo, but they come to the region's roundabout and many of them make reconciliation. Lorenzo, like I said, is Emma's nephew. He actually joins the church and serves a mission. And Emma's brother, Jesse, writes a letter of reconciliation. In his older years, he basically wants to make amends. And so I think sometimes when we talk about Emma leaving, We focus on the separation from the family and how how tremendously difficult it would be. But I think it's good historically to look at this and say, there was some amends being made and her connection with her brother was reestablished. And this letter is touching. And I would encourage you to read it. During this time in Nauvoo, and they're working on the mansion house and they're working on building homes for the saints. And many saints are coming up the Mississippi. There's converts coming from England. During this time period, Plural marriage is rising to the top in Nauvoo, meaning that there are those in the quorum of the anointed. There is a select few members of the church that know about plural marriage, and it's causing a lot of tension in their marriage. When Bryce and I get to the later sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, we are going to unpack some of these. Now, I can't put a bow on it. It's messy. William Clayton, who's Joseph's uh, secretary. Who's also my great, great, great grandfather. Great guy. Great guy he sits down with Joseph and Emma and they have many tearful meetings where heartstrings are pulled and Joseph loves Emma and Emma loves Joseph and plural marriage is happening and William Clayton is our our source for a lot of that tension and a lot of the difficulties that they face and i certainly can't reconcile all of this as i read these historical narratives literally it just wrenches my heart and my Respect for Emma goes up. I can't even imagine being in her shoes or Joseph's shoes. And so I want to just acknowledge that this was going on without getting into the details as of yet, but just know that we will. But I think this helps us to get a window into her heart because not only is that going on, but then because of this and because of rumors circulating and it's a whole complex matrix of events that contribute to Joseph Smith's assassination. Joseph Smith is killed June 27, 1844, and he is taken to go to Carthage. And during this time, Emma comes to him as he's about to leave. And she says, will you give me a blessing? And according to tradition, the prophet told her he didn't have time just then to give her one, but that she should write it the best blessing that she could. And that when he returned, he would sign it. A typescript copy of the blessing she wrote exists, although the original, we haven't found it yet, to my knowledge. While it cannot be proven authentic, most scholars accept this as her work. And the sentiments are drawn from the revelations, reflecting a great deal of consideration, a heartfelt desire to draw upon the words that Joseph used in this typescript copy. To me, as we read this, I think it gives us a window into who Emma is, because she wrote this, according to tradition. So this is what we read. First of all, that I would crave as the richest of heaven's blessings would be wisdom from my heavenly father bestowed daily so that whatever I might do or say, I would not look back at the close of the day with regret nor neglect the performance of any act that would bring a blessing. I desire the spirit of God to know and understand myself that I might be able to overcome whatever tradition or nature that would not tend to my exaltation in the eternal worlds. I desire a fruitful, active mind, that I may be able to comprehend the designs of God when revealed through His servants without doubting. I desire the spirit of discernment, which is one of the blessings of the Holy Ghost. I particularly desire wisdom to bring up all the children that are, or that may be committed to my charge, in such a manner that they will be useful ornaments in the kingdom of God, and in the coming day, rise up and call me blessed. I desire prudence that I may not through ambition abuse my body and cause it to be prematurely old and careworn, but that I may wear a cheerful countenance, live to perform all the work I have covenanted to perform in the spirit world, and be a blessing to all who may in any wise need audit my hands. I desire with all of my heart, to honor and respect my husband as my head, to ever live in his confidence and by acting in unison with him, retain the place which God has given me by his side. I desire to see my kindred and friend embrace the principle of eternal truth, that I may rejoice with them in the blessings which God has in store for all who are willing to be obedient to his requirements. Finally, I desire that whatever may be my lot through life, I may be enabled to acknowledge the hand of God in all things. These desires of my heart were called forth by Joseph sending me word that he had not time to write as he would like, but that I could write out the best blessing I could think of and he would sign the same on his return. Emma Smith. To me, this gives us such a window into who she was. She's longing for him and his blessing.
0: She loves him. Say what you want about whatever happened in Nauvoo, whatever happened with plural marriage, but this woman loves her husband and her husband loves her. That is abundantly clear. and they They are knit together at the very heartstrings and they go hand in hand. I don't think Joseph Smith can go to the celestial kingdom without her nor her without him. Just like I can't go without my wife and my wife can't go without me. There's something tender about this. And once you've put yourself in her shoes for a little bit and you understand the sacrifices she's made and what she's given up, I think we could judge her kindly, especially with what happens after Joseph dies. But this woman loved her husband. Yeah.
1: Joseph's taken to Carthage. He's killed June 27th. And according to one of her biographers, her great-great-granddaughter, Gracia Jones, the governor and 60 of his men who are supposed to be in Carthage protecting Joseph on the night of Joseph's murder. They're at the Nauvoo mansion house eating. Emma is feeding and taking care of the people that are supposed to be protecting her husband on the day of his death. Her life is literally riddled with irony. Emma is a symbol for the church and the church, because it's married to Jesus. This is all symbolic Jesus's life was riddled with irony. He was judged by wicked men and he is the judge. He's the creator of the universe and he's born in a manger. So the church has to experience irony. I think it's part of the process. In my opinion of the four gospels, John does that the most, where he really shows you the irony of Jesus. And so just to reiterate, she is literally taking care of the men that are supposed to be protecting her husband on the day that he's killed. And you can even see the bill that she gives to Governor Ford. Like I said, history is messy. And my interpretation of history is that Governor Ford should have been at his post and his men should have been there protecting. And in my opinion, from my reading of history, he was complicit in Joseph's death. That's going to be my reading as I go through this. I just keep thinking about this wonderful
0: quotation from Neil A. Maxwell he said, A good friend who knows whereof he speaks has observed of trials. If it's fair, it is not a true trial. That is, without the added presence of some inexplicableness and some irony and injustice, the experience may not stretch us or lift us sufficiently. The crucifixion of Christ was clearly the greatest injustice in human history, but the Savior bore it up with majesty and indescribable valor. I just, as we talk about Emma and Joseph and the irony that exists in that relationship, that's important to understand that it, there needs to be a little irony and injustice. And if this is a pattern of all of us in our relationship with Christ, we are here to be stretched and lifted and pushed until we become what he wants us to become. So clearly we're going to find that in the
1: relationship between Joseph and Emma. Yeah. Joseph dies. The saints go west. There's some tension between Brigham and Emma, and a lot of it has to do with property and security, and we'll talk about that later. But just know that because of this and other reasons, Emma doesn't go west. The saints go west, and in 1847, she marries a man named Louis Bitterman from a German family of Methodist background. And according to the descriptions of those in history, describe him as a very fine looking man, six feet tall. And he's been involved in a number of businesses and he's got a little bit of a checkered past. I kind of go through some of this in the show notes and I cite some of the historical sources if you want to go down those rabbit holes. But he's married to her until her death. They're married in 1847. Ironically, we're back to irony. He marries her on December 23rd.
0: Joseph's birthday. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a, that's some irony there. Um, and then they're married until her death on April 30th, 1879. So they're married for 31 years. When they get married, Emma's 44 and Lewis is 41 years old. And during the course of their marriage, they have some separation. There's a period of time where he goes west during the gold rush and they write. And some of those letters are extant. You can read those. But then later in their marriage, when Lewis is 58 and Emma is 61, Lewis is unfaithful to, to Emma. Um, there's a woman by the name of Nancy Perryman Brooks Abercrombie. She's a 35-year-old woman in Nauvoo. She has a son named Charles, and he's born in 1864. So to put it in perspective, Emma and Lewis now have been married for 16 years And this child is born, and Emma is 61 years old. And to show you the way that Emma is, what kind of person Emma is, well, in 1868, Nancy's unable to care for the son that Lewis had fathered. And so she came to Emma, and Nancy said, Emma, can you take care of him? And Emma agreed to take care of him. And then she asked Nancy to be a housekeeper so that Nancy could have employment. So Nancy's working at the Nauvoo house. And be with her son. She recognized yeah. that need. I'll be happy to step in, but you need to be with your boy. I mean, Tell me that? what kind of woman this is. Who does that? And she takes care of her. And she makes sure that, that Charles has a good upbringing. Now, it's during this time that as, as she proceeds in AIDS, she has concern for the child And she also has concern for Lewis. Lewis is getting old. Now, she doesn't know that Lewis is going to live a lot longer. But as as she gets older and Emma realizes that Charles is going to need an upbringing, she asks her husband when she's nearing death that he will marry Nancy so that Charles has a home. And so Emma dies on the 30th of April, 1879. And then a little over a year later, Lewis and Nancy get married. And he, Lewis, was married to Nancy from the age of seventy-four until he was eighty-five years old. And Lewis Bitterman died February eleventh, eighteen ninety-one, and was buried near the old homestead next to Emma. And so one of her dying wishes is that this child that she raises as her own. In fact, in later testimonies, Charles would always tell people, he he went by Eddie later in life. People would say, What was Emma like? And he said, She raised me like I was her own son. Now go back to section 25 and do you see why the Lord would call Emma
0: Smith an elect
1: lady? Near and dear his heart. Not only does she take care of this child, um, but she takes care of another child. Uh, Latter-day Saint widow, Elizabeth Kendall and her family first became acquainted with Emma at the mansion house in Nauvoo. Her family stayed behind after the saints went west and Elizabeth eventually remarries, the same year that Emma marries Lewis. When Elizabeth dies in childbirth, young Elizabeth Agnes was left with her stepfather, and soon after, a new stepmother. And when her stepparents determined they could no longer take care of her, the eight-year-old orphan found her way back to Emma, and Emma raised her as her own daughter. Elizabeth Agnes eventually is going to marry. Emma's son, Alexander Hale Smith. So there's the connection. In Emma's goodness, she raises a child that is not hers. That young woman grows up and then marries Alexander Hale Smith. Now think about the blessing that Emma asked for as Joseph's being taken to Carthage. Remember the line where she talks about the children that she has or that she may have placed into her charge. That God would grant her power to be that kind of mom. And I think, what an incredible woman of faith. And not only during this time period is this happening, but Lucy Max Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, in 1851, she's in Nauvoo and she moves into the household, and Emma takes care of her. In fact, Lucy refers to Emma with great regard. Lucy's going to die on the 14th of May, 1856. But this is what Lucy said about Emma. She said, I've never seen a woman in my life who would endure every species of fatigue and hardship from month to month and from year to year with that unflinching courage, zeal and patience, which she has ever done. For I know that which she has had to endure. Of course, Lucy knows she's been there every step of the way. She's been tossed upon the ocean of uncertainty. She's breasted the storms of persecution and buffeted the rage of men and devils, which would have borne down almost any other woman. And I got to just echo that. I got to say, you know what, Lucy? I think you know what you're talking about. I mean, she's right there. She had a front row seat. And so I just want to pay tribute to her. Uh, she clearly lives much longer than Joseph, 35 years after the martyrdom. And like I said, she dies in 1879 in her 75th year. In her last years, she was greatly loved. And in the last hours of her life, she was attended by her family, Louis Bitterman, Julia, Joseph Third, and Alexander. And according to Alexander, Emma seemed to to sink away during these last few days. But then she raised up and stretched out her hand, calling Joseph, Joseph. Falling back on Alexander's arms, she clasped her hands on her bosom and her spirit was gone. Both Alexander and Joseph thought she was calling for her son, Joseph. But later, Alexander learned more about the incident. Sister Elizabeth Revel, Emma's nurse, explained that a few days earlier, Emma told her that Joseph Smith came to her in a vision. Joseph came to her and said, Emma, come with me. It's time for you to come home. As Emma related, she said, I put on my bonnet and my shawl and I went with him. I did not think that it was anything unusual. I went with him into a mansion and he showed me through the different apartments of that beautiful mansion. And one room was the nursery. In that nursery was a babe in the cradle. She said, I knew my babe. I knew my Don Carlos that was taken from me. She sprang forward, caught the child in her arms and wept with joy over the child. When Emma recovered herself sufficient, she turned to Joseph and she said, Joseph, where are all the rest of my children? He said to her, Emma, be patient and you shall have all of them. Then she saw standing by his side, a personage of light, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of where I'm at. I can't judge her. I don't know how it's all going to play out. But if you're listening to this right now, and you're in that moment of Emma right now where you're like, I just can't do it anymore. I think that Emma could relate. I think something in Emma broke that day on June 27th, 1844. And I think, I think she was just done moving. Now that being said, I also want to talk about Mary Fielding, the other widow that day. When Hiram is killed, Mary Fielding is married to Hiram and she goes west. And if you've studied her family and her posterity, they're pillars in the church. And so to me, the church is really on both sides of the veil. On our side of the veil, we have the story of the descendants of Hiram that were incredibly strong, but I believe that on the other side of the veil, Joseph is working with his posterity. And so that's kind of my approach. And Bryce, I got to tell you, when I was a brand new teacher, I was really dogmatic. And I regret those days. And so if you're listening and you're one of my students from like way back in the 90s, I just want to apologize. Cause I remember saying things like, you know, I would judge Emma and I'd say, well, she didn't go West. And I wish I could take all of that back because over a few years, a a few more gray hairs and reading her story, like letting Emma speak, I see things differently. And I think maybe that's a lesson for us as people. Jesus is always willing to judge us on our hearts. Yeah our
0: histories, our circumstances. One of my favorite scriptures is that God will suit his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. And if that's the case, Emma deserves more mercy than anyone else I know. If he suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men, bless her heart, we ought to surround her, we ought to encloak her with as much grace and mercy and forgiveness as she deserves a woman who was with Joseph all the way and sacrificed so much. So Emma, Mike and I pay tribute to you. We are grateful for the legacy you have left us. We are grateful for the different layers. We hope you discover more and come to see things in these layers that will change your life and bless you so that we can all go to the kingdom where I am convinced Emma will be found.
1: And with that, we will look at the other sections in this portion of Come Follow Me.
0: So let's jump into that. We do want to say a few things about 23, 24, 26. Just briefly, are you willing to acknowledge a weakness and turn it into a strength? Or are you going to turn a blind eye to it and possibly allow it to destroy you? We're going to watch two people. One will do one, one will do the other. As we talk about being
1: vulnerable and willing to acknowledge our weaknesses. And I think we're headed with this, Bryce, is Section 23 is this introduction where the Lord's like, Hey, Oliver, let me tell you
0: something. You got a problem, buddy. But then in 24, he's going to say the same thing to Joseph,
1: and they'll respond very differently. Yeah, so I remember when we talked about Section 20 and 21, where right there in the organization of the church, in the Whitmer's home the Lord stopped the meeting and said, here's a revelation and right in front of the Whitmers, right in front of David, Joseph, you're my guy. And then, oh, by the way, Oliver, you're the second elder. Can you imagine if Oliver and David knew what was happening. If, if they knew, if they could see... They could sense the Lord waving his arms. Yeah. In other words, we have history on our side. We can go back and we can see these things, and yet they couldn't. But the Lord could because he stands out of time. In fact, there's this idea in, in the literature, in the prophetic literature, uh, the word is truth, and that and it's, it's three characters in Hebrew. It's the first character, the aleph, the last character, the tau, and the middle, the mem. Now, that's where we get the letter M. The mem had this connotation of water. On the top, there was like this crest or the waves, the waves of the sea. And the aleph is the past. We were once with God. But now we're in the waves of the sea. And the final character is the Tau. And it's very similar to the Omega in Greek. It's the gate, the gate into the eternal world, the future. And so if you read section 93, verse 24, the Lord says, truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. And Jacob in the Book of Mormon adds the word really
0: things. The truth is knowledge of the things as they really are as they
1: really were and really are to come. Yeah, so that that word truth has in the word, it has the past with the aleph, the present with the sea, the mem that we are currently in this ocean of chaos and the tau, the gate that we will pass through. Think about crossing into the veil, into the presence of the Lord. And all three of those you have to have. In fact, I believe in section 93, verse 24, or in the next verse, it says something like, whatever is more or less than this cometh of the evil one. Well, if you take the aleph away from truth, you get the word for death. I just find that fascinating. So right there in this meeting, the Lord's like, let me tell you what your weakness is. In
0: sections 23 and 24, the first two elders are told of a weakness. So let me introduce the idea. Do you remember the war chapters of the Book of Mormon? They are a type and a shadow of our war against Lucifer. And Malachi is a shadow of Lucifer. Malachi wanted to be king, wasn't chosen, gathered his forces, and now fights against the very people who didn't choose him as king. Much like Satan wanted to rule with God or replace God, wasn't chosen, got offended, gathered his followers, and now fights against the people who didn't choose him. So Amalickiah and the war chapters are like our war against Satan. So as soon as Amalickiah rebels and goes and joins the Lamanites, Captain Moroni knows he's coming back. So in chapter 48 of Alma, he begins to prepare for the attack. Now, the first thing he does is he prepares the mind of the people to be faithful unto God. That's Alma 48, 7. But notice verse 9. He does a very, very painful thing. He asks a very painful question, and that is, where are we weak? Where are the weakest spots? And then in verse 9, he in the weakest fortifications, he did place the greatest number of men. You can imagine it would m- must have been a little humiliating to find out that you were the weakest fortification, that Moroni is here to strengthen you up because you're our problem. You're going to be the problem of the Nephite nation. But that's a very painful question. Where are we weak? But watch what happens when we answer that. We ask that question. In chapter 49, when the Lamanites attack, they first go to a city they've previously attacked, Ammoniah, and finding it fortified, they go to the city of Noah. And the reason they went to Noah, verse 12, is they supposed it was the next best place for them to come against the Nephites. But verse 13, Moroni had fortified the city of Noah. He had built forts of security. Verse 14, the city of Noah, which had hitherto been a weak place, had now by the means of Moroni become strong. Verse 15, as the city of Noah had hitherto been the weakest part of the land, therefore they would march thither to battle. By having that vulnerable moment and saying, where are we weak? And then fixing the weak spots, we actually gain power over our enemies. If you still in Alma 49, down to verse 23, because of what Nephi, or Moroni did, because he was willing to acknowledge his weak spots and fortified them, verse 23, thus the Nephites had all power over their enemies. The final body count in the city of Noah was a thousand dead Lamanites and not a single dead Nephite. And that was their weakest city. If the war chapters are a type and a shadow of our battle against Lucifer, the spirit of that is saying, are you willing to have a tough conversation with the Lord and with yourself and say, where am I weak? Where am I vulnerable? What are my weak spots? I remind you what the Lord said to Moroni in Ether chapter 12. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And then he adds, once you know what your weakness is, if you are humble about it, then will the Lord make weak things become strong. But first you need to come unto Christ Identify what your weaknesses are and then humbly be willing to fortify those weak cities. In sections 23 and 24, the first two elders are told of a weakness. In section 23, Oliver Cowdery is told in verse one, beware of pride. In other words, Oliver, you have a weakness and your weakness is pride. And the reality is, Oliver Cowdery will be excommunicated from this church, and as you read through the list of the reasons he was excommunicated, they are almost all exclusively due to Oliver's pride. Pride will get Oliver out of the church. He didn't safeguard against the Lord's warning. The Lord pointed out a weakness, and I wonder if he just brushed it off. Now, compare that in section 24. Joseph Smith in verse 9 is told, In temporal labors, thou shalt not have strength. In other words, same idea. The Lord says to Joseph Smith, Joseph, you have a weakness. You have a problem, Joseph. You're not very good at writing stuff down, you're not very good at temporal things. Case in point, can anyone tell me how the Melchizedek priesthood was restored? We don't know the story. Right. We don't have
1: all the details. We know who, yeah,
0: but we don't know when or where or what happened because Joseph never wrote it down. He was not good in temporal things. But here's the difference. Joseph acknowledged that weakness. And from the day the church was organized, he begins to hire scribes. He begins to say, I am not strong in temporal things, therefore, I'm going to pull into my life someone who is, and I'm going to use their strength to overcome my challenges. That's a humble acknowledgement of a weakness that the Lord pointed out. Now, just compare those two. Oliver's told, you have a weakness in pride. Now, the scriptures are full of antidotes for pride. I love in Alma chapter 15, Alma and Amulek do not leave Sidon until there is, quote, a great check on their pride. I'm not leaving this city, says the prophet, until there is a great check on pride. And Oliver didn't do that. He's been told he has a weakness, he's vulnerable to pride, and he doesn't seem to check his pride, and it's his pride that gets him out of the church, as opposed to Joseph, who immediately puts a check on his weakness, and he hires a scribe. So the painful but important lesson we need to walk away from these two sections, one of them is, are you going to be more like Oliver Or more like Joseph? Will you acknowledge, will you seek out from the Lord and from people who love you what your weakness is? Here's another illustration just to go along with that. Do you remember the night of the Last Supper? Jesus announces that one of them will betray him. And to that, everyone says, Lord, is it I? Do I have that weakness? Is that my problem? Is that something I need to fix? But then Jesus specifically says, all of you will be offended by me tonight. And Peter's response is more like Oliver's. Though all men should be offended by thee, yet will I not be offended. Everyone else might, but I won't. In other words, he kind of called Jesus a liar. I'm not going to be offended by you. Jesus said, you're going to be offended by me tonight. And Peter says, not me. I don't have that weakness. Others might. So-and-so next door might, or that one woman that sits in the back of the chapel, she definitely does, but I don't have that weakness. And Jesus must have just shaken his head and said, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me, not just be offended, but you'll deny me. And Peter vehemently says, though I should die with thee, I would not deny thee. Peter, you have a weakness. I wonder what would have happened if Peter had just gone home and locked himself under his bed as a check on the weakness. But he didn't. He put himself in the most vulnerable position he could possibly put himself in because he didn't see his weakness. So where was the Lord is it I attitude? And are we going to do the same thing when the Lord points out a weakness, when the Lord, whether through it's a friend or someone who loves you, or maybe even an enemy who points out by a honk how your driving needs to improve, and you respond by, though all men might have that weakness, yet do I not. I'm a great driver. You're the horrible driver. And so there's the response. It's, do you hear what they're saying? Will you listen? Is there a warning in your patriarchal blessing about a weakness? And that's the paragraph you skip when you read your patriarchal blessing. We need to respond like Joseph and say, oh, if that's my weakness, then I'm going to put a check on it. I'm going to hire a scribe. Uh, Boyd K. Packer kind of said it this way. It is worth inviting people to help you. While there is great value in seeking a personal interview to receive counsel, what I am talking about is something else. It is an unstructured process with counsel and suggestions offered in bits and pieces and you responding with thanks. That process survives only when there is genuine desire to learn and an invitation to those who can teach and correct you. That invitation is not always in words, but more in attitude. Once, when I returned from a mission, tour, totally exhausted, my wife said to me, I've never seen you so tired. What is the matter? Did you find a mission president who wouldn't listen? No, I replied. It was just the opposite. I found one who wanted to learn. Many will say they want to learn, but feel threatened if there is the slightest element of correction to what they are given. He wanted to learn that president now sits in the Council of the Twelve Apostles. I have learned that few respond when that kind of teaching or correction is offered, and few invite it. Let's learn from Joseph and Oliver that the Lord really is, if we come unto Him, He really will show us our weakness. Whether He Himself does it or His children that surround
1: us do it, If you come unto Christ, he's going to tell you where you're weak. I think it is natural for us to not want to be corrected. I know that that's one of the things that I look at. And when someone says, hey, you can do this better, that can be a real challenge. So I think that's really good counsel. I want to talk a little bit about Joseph Knight. We've talked about him before, but in the 23rd section, verse 6, the Lord encourages him to take up his cross and pray vocally And then verse 7, to unite with the true church. Joseph was a little bit hesitant on joining the church just then. He wanted to read the Book of Mormon through, which I certainly understand. Both he and Newell, Knight, his son, struggled with praying vocally. And that was one of the things that Newell promised Joseph that he would do, is that he would pray vocally. And so after the initial baptisms in April... You know, Joseph didn't have everything mapped out. He didn't know how everything was going to play out. So after those baptisms, he headed back home to Harmony, Pennsylvania, because he had to make payments on that house and he had to put in crops. And so on his way back, he stopped at the Knights Farm in Colville and they were really supportive of Joseph, but they hadn't joined the church at this time. And so in this time where he stopped and visited with them, he visited with Newell Knight. And um, he was one of, obviously, Joseph and Polly's sons. And they talked about the gospel. And Joseph invited him to pray in a meeting. And Newell said he'd rather pray alone in the woods. And Joseph encouraged him to do that. And so the next morning, Newell went out to pray, and he just couldn't do it. He said that an uneasy feeling came over him, and it grew worse as he started for home. And by the time he reached home, he just had this oppressive spirit around him. And he begged his wife, Polly, to run and go get Joseph. And this is one of the first recorded so-called miracles in the church. I call it so-called because I think the translation of the Book of Mormon is a miracle and so many visions that Joseph had. But in this experience that is related in the historical record, Newell, was his body was contorting. He was lifted off the ground and Joseph cast the devil out of him. And this was recorded, and later Newell had to testify in court to this. And we included in the show notes, you can read some of the records, actually, the transcript from the court where he talks about this. Um, I like to share this as one of the first experiences that the church has with understanding more about Satan. You see, In this time period, people had some strange ideas. And one of the things that some people thought was, if you go to church and you're shaking or you're rolling around on the ground, that that's a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. And in my estimation, one of the things Joseph is doing is he's pointing people to the light, but he's also showing them where the darkness is. He's revealing who the adversary is. And so we see this in the first vision, we see this in the experience with Newell Knight, and we'll see it later with Heber C. Kimball's experiences when he goes to Preston, England. And so I like that as a, just a little historical tidbit about Joseph and about Newell. A question I often get from students is what do we do with verse 15 in the 24th section of the Doctrine and Covenants? Before I read it, there's a couple other verses that are very Old Testament-ish, and those are verses 4 and 6 and this idea of a cursing and a blessing. And it's just, it's very foreign to us today. But as you've gone through the Old Testament, you've seen this, right? With the blessings and the cursings. And this idea of dusting off your feet, verse 15, you shall leave a cursing if they reject you instead of a blessing by casting off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony and cleansing your feet by the wayside. The Lord's later going to tell his followers, hey guys, don't do that in front of the people that you're teaching that are rejecting you, you're just going to engender ill feeling. And in the footnote, if you look there in verse 15, there's all these references in Mark and Luke and the Acts and so forth. This was a thing. This happened. But we certainly don't do this today. James E. Talmadge said this, to ceremonially shake the dust from one's feet as a testimony against another was understood by the Jews, to symbolize... A cessation of fellowship and a renunciation of all responsibility for consequences that might follow. It became an ordinance of accusation and testimony by the Lord's instruction to his apostles, as cited in the text. In the current dispensation, the Lord has similarly directed his authorized servants to so testify against those who willfully and maliciously oppose the truth when authoritatively presented. The responsibility of testifying before the Lord by this accusing symbol is so great that the means may be employed only under unusual and extreme conditions as the spirit of the lord may direct. Now another commentator said this, after the call of the 12, 12 apostles, we would understand this authority to rest with them as it did anciently or to those to whom they directly gave it. And so for me, I just read this and say, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that. It's in the scriptures. Certainly it happened in the New Testament, and if you study some of the church history, the early missionaries, some of Joseph Smith's brothers are doing this, and I don't think it necessarily engenders a really good conversation, and so usually when I talk about this kind of thing, I like to quote, well, Elder Holland is a really good one, but Elder Oaks has some really good quotes on this, where they say, hey, stand up for truth But we need to do so without becoming disagreeable. We need to do so in the most civil possible way that we can. And I think some people might have this temptation. I'm going to be so true. I'm going to be so loyal that I'm just going to totally cast shade on people that oppose the truth. And sometimes I think in their efforts to be zealous, I think they might do more harm than good. And so that would just be my encouragement. I'm talking to myself, of course, in everything People are going to attack us, especially if you go online, especially if you do something like start a podcast or if you make a religious statement on Facebook where you say, Hey, this is how I feel, people are going to come at you. And I would just encourage all of us to to be considerate. And we've got to do it in such a way that it's civil. And one of my favorite stories about this is the story on the temple tax, where Jesus is with his apostles. And these guys come to him and say, hey, are you guys going to pay the the two drachma temple tax? And I love what Jesus does. So it's Matthew 17. Um, Why don't you read it for us, Bryce? It's a beautiful little
0: moment because Peter kind of gets defensive. They come and they ask Peter, does your Lord pay the tax? And he says, of course he does, kind of being defensive. And then later, when Jesus and Peter are alone, Jesus says to him, "Um, Peter, of whom do kings tax? Do they tax their children or strangers? Well, kings don't tax their children, so Peter says strangers. And Jesus says, then are the children free. Meaning, Peter, I don't have to pay the tax on my own house. (laughs) This is my house. I don't tax my own house. We tax other people for my house. He was really saying, I don't have to do this. I don't have to pay the tax. Nevertheless, verse 27, lest we should offend. Go catch a fish. There'll be money in the fish. Pay the tax. And I think Jesus is saying, you know what? Sometimes we just need to say, I don't have to. I have every right not to, but lest I offend,
1: I'll pay the tax. Beautiful that, moment. I, I really think, to me, that's how I'm going to read these verses. I, I I would never want to encourage anybody to to take these literally in our cultural context. Although I understand these early missionaries did, I don't know if Bryce if they had a lot of success, no, uh, casting the dust off their feet. Right. I think there is a good way to look at this, and I
0: think modern day missionaries could see this in a positive light. Um, we often read it as, I'm going to curse you because you're rejecting me. I'm going to curse you and everything that follows is your, you know, your fault. I think there's another way. In Jacob chapter one of the Book of Mormon, Jacob shakes the blood off of his garments because he's done everything he possibly can to teach them. I am no longer responsible for your transgressions because I have taught you. And in that spirit, a missionary ought to say, I am not going to shake the dust off of my feet until I have done everything possible to teach them. So there's kind of that positive motivation. Rather than, oh, you rejected me, so I'm going to curse you. I think we should look at it more positively and say, they are rejecting me, but they don't understand. Let me try again. It's the spirit of Jacob that says, We did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Therefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. So one positive interpretation is don't give up. Don't walk away until you have done everything you can to teach them. Don't shake the blood off your garments until you have lived up to your responsibility
1: to teach them with all diligence. My take for me is going to be, I'm I'm never there. I've never really arrived as a teacher or as a father. So I'm going to keep going. I really like that. So we're going to go to section 26. And I'm going to view this as a great protection to the church where everything is done in the open. Everything is done by what verse 2 says, common consent. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that someone came to you and said, hey, I've been assigned by the authorities, and then they could name their authority. I have a special calling And I want you to come with me and we're going to invest in this land. And it's been deemed by the Lord that this should be done or whatever, whatever it is that they say. I think section 26 is a great protection to the church where everything is done in the open, meaning that the body of the church knows what's going on. I think this is why we have state conference, ward conference, and general conference so that we can all stand. We sustain our leaders. We know who they are. And at least in state conference, we also acknowledge all the new elders that have been called. And everything is above board. We, it's kind of back to that principle we talked about with section 20, where the Lord is going to come in through the front door.
0: There's a great protection there. The whole church accepts this. And I think we can look at that on a personal level. You can say, well, should I do this? Should I do that? And we can ask ourselves, well, what is the common consent of the church in terms of that? Modesty, for example, what we wear. I think there's great protection in saying, I'm wearing what the church
1: wears. I'm doing what the church does. So this is kind of a different way of looking at it. What I hear you saying is common consent is Not only us sustaining our leaders, but what do we commonly view as truth or a standard? Yeah,
0: but in the spirit of a protection to the church. So it's a protection because the church does its business by common consent. And everyone acknowledges, every priesthood official in my ward who participates in the sacrament and brings me the sacrament, I've had a chance to sustain I sustain their authority to bring me the sacrament. It's done in common consent, and that we all acknowledge who has authority and who doesn't. There's a protection. I'm just pushing us to that personal level that the other protection is to ask ourselves, what is the common consent of the church in this particular action? Um, what do the majority of people think? Um, there's always questions about foods that we eat or practices that we do. And I think there's great safety in saying, what is the general common consent of the church in terms of this particular action? There's safety there in saying, I am in the mainstream of the church. It reminds me of that quote from Bruce R. McConkie. Let's read it, Mike.
1: I love where he says, you don't have to have an excessive zeal that becomes fanatical and unbalancing, but what you do have to have, what you do need is to stay in the mainstream of the church and live as upright and decent people live in the church, keep the commandments, pay your tithing, serve in the organizations of the church, love the Lord, and stay on the path. And so I think what I'm hearing you say, Bryce, is common consent is certainly what we refer to in the church where we understand who has we been... Each other. We sustain them. But it's also, what is the common position What is the mainstream position? We don't have to be out on the fringes, as it were. Now, we're going to see struggles with this. We're going to see people that are going to pop up in Joseph's life and after that are going to say, hey, I had this conversation with Joseph. Hey, I know this guy that says, hey, maybe I'm to be in charge. And then even after Joseph dies, we'll see some of this happen. And so I really do see this, Bryce, where the Lord is having Joseph set up these standards And then over the course of his life, especially once the 12 have been called, he's going to train them so that he can be replaced so that the organization can move forward and we can build Zion. So with that, we're going to conclude and we thank you for listening. And by the way, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's this really cool thing called Institute We would encourage everyone that is of institute age, 18 to 30, to reach
0: out and find an institute. If you live in the Salt Lake Valley, come up to the University of Utah Institute. Come join us. Come take one of our classes. There are so many wonderful instructors up here. You'll find friendship. We welcome you. Even if it's the middle of the semester, we want to welcome you up and invite you to take an institute class. And just a note that that talk Elder Bruce R. gave, the probationary test of mortality, was given at the Salt Lake Institute right next to the University of Utah. So general authorities come and speak to Institute students on a frequent basis. You may want to participate
1: in Institute and tap into that spiritual reservoir. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time when we talk about Doctrine and Covenants section 27 and 28. Armor of God. And Hiram Page's seer stone. Good stuff. Is
0: it a matter of who has the stone gets the revelation? Or how does revelation in the church work? Great topic next time. It's going to be good. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.